We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today joining us is Christian Borges, who's the SVP of marketing at TrueX. Let's jump in and get to know Christian. Christian, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you in person, virtually. <laughs> Absolutely. That's how we do it these well, days. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a guest on your uh, podcast. This is an honor and privilege and excited to be here. Looking forward to the combo. Yeah. We're thrilled, Christian. You have a tremendous background. We're going to jump into that in, in, in a little bit. But first, for our, our listeners, can you tell us a, a little bit about where you're from, where you were born, and a little bit about your family? Absolutely. So I am a uh, New Yorker. I was born in New York in Queens, Flushing Hospital, lived there until I was six or seven years old. But even before that, before I was even born or even a thought to where I'm from, my culture and my background, my parents are both from Haiti. So, you know, they both migrated to the U.S. when they were 19 and 16, respectively. A lot going on in Haiti during that time period. The rise of Papa Doc and the dictatorship and the killings and whatnot. So my parents came over to this country separately. They didn't know each other. Uh, they knew of each other. They did not know one another, though. Settled in New York and in Queens, where many of the uh, Haitian migrants ended up. And that was home. They did not speak English. You know, they learned English. My father ended up fighting in the Vietnam War and became a citizen as a result of that. And then uh, put himself to school, night school, uh, while uh, working at uh, Chase Manhattan Bank at the time, and rose to the level of VP over many, many years in foreign exchange. You know, that's the family background. My first language is French and Creole, Sarbassé, Naboulé, and for anybody that's Haitian listening as well, happy uh, anniversary as far as the Haitian uh, liberation. We had our Independence Day, Jan 1, so... That's what's up with that. Um, That's great. Yep. No, Christian, I wanted to ask you a, a little bit about your parents and the ages they came over because my mother came over from Central America at age 17. And I think about when I was 17 and when she was 17, our worlds probably could not be more different in terms of like what we were trying to do. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe what that sort of means and how that impacted maybe even you? having them come over so early and what that sort of meant? Well, I think in general, there's a lot I can unpack with that question. I'll try not to deviate too much, but first and foremost, I think, you know, many people of color whose parents, whether it's parents or grandparents, came from other countries, whether it's the islands or, you know, the motherland Africa itself or elsewhere, they come with a chip on their shoulder. They come with a fire in the belly because mm -hmm. they have to survive. They don't have a choice. You know, my parents came, I think my dad said he came with less than a hundred bucks in his pocket, you know, uh, with my father-in-law, uh, with my grandfather. So, you know, just the work ethic and the drive to succeed, to excel, to thrive, it was a matter of life and death, literally. It's not a choice. They weren't given anything. And so, you know, those same mentalities, that same mentality as far as work ethic and 
that fire in the belly, the desire to succeed, that chip on the shoulder definitely gets passed down uh, generation to generation, right? So, yeah, you know, I saw my parents working their butts off. I'll, I'll keep it, you know, family clean here, PG, <laughs> uh, working their butts off, you know, my entire adolescence and, and childhood. And they were never shy about letting me see what they were doing. And so, you know, to me, that's what I know. That's how I grew up, that work ethic, that pride also in terms of where they come from and knowing where they come from also gets passed along. And, you know, being Haitian, it comes with a lot of baggage. You know, on the one hand, it's the first independent Black country ever established in the world. You know, it was created as uh, from a slave revolt, and they beat Napoleon's army. So there's a lot there to be proud of, for sure. That said, we are also, you know, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. You know, we've had dictators running that country forever, uh, for the longest time. You know, the poverty levels are just insane. You know, and then there's all the natural disasters on top, one after the other, after yeah. the, or the earthquake, obviously, everybody remembers back in 2010. And so, you know, these are things that, that stay with me and I carry with me as well. It's part of my identity, even though I was not born in Haiti. I'm, I'm you know, fortunate enough to be, you know, uh, afforded a better life here in the U.S. And, and be born here. But, you know, the first three years of my life, man, my whole world was was the Haitian community, the Haitian culture. Again, my first language was French and Creole. So, you know, uh, looking at things through that lens is a very unique and different component of being a person of color in this country specifically. And I think a lot of people from other countries feel that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, what's what's interesting about that is um, our Black ERG group at Live Intent we just had this conversation about a month ago, right? Because when you think of, you know, most people that are not black, right? When you see a black person in this country, you just automatically think that they're African-American. And that's not the case, right? You know, we come from many different places throughout the world. And we were having that conversation at work about, you know, African-American versus being black, not versus in the in the sense of competing against each other, but just the difference and and seeing the world through a different lens. And you can't paint us all with, you know, the same broad brush. We are all different and don't just judge us by the color of our skin. I mean, that is such a great point, Corral. Mm -hmm. And it's one that I think many people that are not of African American descent specifically but come from different countries, but are still part of the beautiful Black diaspora and the tapestry that makes up who we are. We all feel that, what you just right. said. Right. You know, it's so easy and, I guess, necessary to a degree for the government to want to compartmentalize and put people in boxes and just right. check those boxes, right? Mm -hmm. But we are much more of a, of a melting pot than a salad bowl. We all are blended. And so, you know, that one box does not fit most of our diaspora, we are mm -hmm. complex and, and complicated, and we come from many different cultures and backgrounds. And while we're not saying that, you know, they should acknowledge every single one of those, but there is something to be said for being African-American or Black American, and mm -hmm. it's two different things. You know, I consider myself 
Haitian American, even though I'm born in this country, raised in this country. I've gone through all of my school and education and I've only ever worked here. But, you know, being first generation born in this country, I definitely have a strong affiliation with my homeland of, of my culture and background. So it, it is a unique, you know, challenge that I see not just here in this country, frankly, but in yeah. <laughs> in other countries as well. But, you know, being African-American is obviously, uh, you know, unique to, to being Black in this country and being put into the same category as all the other, you know, Blacks in the world. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's funny, Carell, because I was actually, uh, I watched school days with my boys the other day, the other night, uh, the Spike Lee joint. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of those same themes that were in that film are themes that still carry on to this day, but are also <laughs> relevant within the entire Black diaspora, no matter where you are. So it was just yeah. interesting to see the similarities and the differences, no matter, you know, whether this country or others, man. So many, uh, you know, challenges and differences and nuances of being a person of color, period. Yes. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at some important paperwork. And I think what we're saying here is that uh, when you get to that, there's more than four or five checkboxes, right? Like literally. <laughs> literally. So thank you for that, Christian. That, that, that's huge. You mentioned education and work. I want to talk about that for a second. Tell us a, a little bit about your education. And you've worked at some tremendous, tremendous organizations. You've worked with some of the biggest brands in the country, if not the world. Tell us how you started on your career path and, and tell us how you, you sort of got started. Sure, sure, Eric. So I went to Howard University, HU. So to our previous uh, conversation, Eric, very familiar with DC. Love uh, it. Shouts 202. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Howard, going to that university, the mother pearl of HBCUs, it really was an education on in more ways than I can even count. You know, obviously there's the actual education and, and what you get there, the, the teachings from some of the best professors in the country across the board. I went to school of B and then switched over to school of C. So, you know, wanted to and dip my toe into the world of finance and was doing junior trading in, in foreign exchange on one Wall Street Plaza for, for a couple of summers and then really had an epiphany and decided it wasn't really for me and switched course to communications and journalism, which was my love always in the first place. But Howard, again, being you know a beautiful tapestry of bringing together the entire Black diaspora from around the world was really an education in terms of a better understanding of myself and my place in society, you know, during those years, <laughs> I realized that I, at heart and at the core, I just had this conversation with my boys the other day, actually, after doing some reflection of last year, but was telling them that one of my key takeaways is that fact that uh, I feel like I've always been an activist and that activism started at HU, you know, ironically, my freshman year, as a matter of fact, we, we took over the administration building for three days. And, you know, because they had appointed a, a controversial person to the board of directors, uh, Lee Atwater, who was well known for saying very racist things and having very racist perspectives and points of view. And from that moment on, I mean, have been marching and writing and 
talking out against all sorts of uh, issues on both a global and domestic level. So definitely have HU to thank for that, among many other things uh, that are too deep to get into on this conversation, but maybe part two next time. Um, Part two, part two. As it pertains to work, I started out in the world of PR. So coming out of college, you know, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. A lot less opportunities back then than there are now. Mm. And so knew I wanted to be in New York, knew I wanted to be in advertising or marketing or journalism or something there thereabouts, but wasn't sure what. Ended up getting a job, my first job at a PR agency, a very small uh, mom and pop shop PR agency that actually was a food and beverage specialist and worked with some of the biggest clients on that side of the uh, CPG world. Primarily, they were the uh, agency of record, PR agency of record for craft desserts and beverage, uh, which meant everything from Jell-O to Cool Whip to Kool-Aid. They also worked with uh, McElhaney, uh, Tabasco sauce. They did the launch for uh, Altoids. And so I worked with a bunch of those brands doing many, many campaigns and initiatives on the PR front, which is a lot of press releases, a lot of high-end celebrity-driven events, if you will, you know, calling press kits and press releases together and outreach and really doing everything from soup to nuts as it pertains to the world of public relations, Mm -hmm. which for me, you know, I look back at that and I'd say, A, because it was such a small uh, shop, everyone did everything from soup to nuts. There was no hierarchy. And I think, you know, to this day, when people ask me, you know, how do I get started and should I go work at a big agency? I don't steer them away from that. But based on my own experience, working at a small company, a small agency just afforded me the ability to do everything, Mm -hmm. to learn everything from jump. Everybody basically rolls up their their sleeves and has that, you know, all hands on deck mentality, which is something I carry with me to this day, no matter where I'm working. Um, It's all hands on deck. There's no job that's too big for me to not sit there and at least have a perspective and if needed to actually roll up the sleeves and to do. So that was my first foray into the world of, you know, professional advertising, marketing, PR. And then uh, my career just kind of zigged and zagged from there. You know, and one of the things you, you said there about your earlier experience that I think it's important getting your hands in a lot of different areas, because at that age, you don't know what you don't know, right? And so by experiencing multiple areas of PR or marketing or advertising, you're able to learn and expose yourself to new things to help you determine what avenue you actually want to take your career path down. 100%. 100%. It's so, you know, that was such an eye opening experience those first three years working at uh, Hunter and Associates or Hunter PR, I guess they're called now. But, you know, just again to your point, Carell, just being able to see the, in- pull back the lens and get a macro purview of the world of PR and everything mm-hmm. that it entails. And then closing that aperture to a point where you're actually doing everything as well. You know, where the rubber hits the road, 
you are involved, you are doing it, you, you know, and being a part of it. And so that was great. Again, talk about education, a great on-hand education that I got and received. And after three years, you know, took my wares and took my experience and started, you know, doing what uh, I guess young kids do, you know, in order to advance if they're not lucky enough to be at a, uh, a large company, which I was working at very large agencies. But in order to advance, I needed to move around a bit and seek where the opportunities and where my interests lie, yeah. more importantly, and take risks. And I think that's something that, you know, if I look back over the arc of my career, I've never shied away from taking risks. You know, I feel like in life, you know what you know. And if yeah. you know it good enough, you should be able and willing and wanting to take risks and put yourself in uncomfortable situations where you can actually learn and advance yourself from a professional IQ perspective, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And fast forwarding to, you know, being the, the SVP of marketing now at, at Truex, uh, Christian, what do you love about your job today and what you're doing today? Well, I think in general, you know, after pivoting from PR to the world of social media, and working at, uh, uh, I would say, the first, you know, full-service social media agency in the country, really, uh, working on massive campaigns for entertainment and big brands. And then, you know, being in the world of ad tech uh, for the past seven and a half years. And then, you know, as a result of that, having a foot in the world of linear television mm-hmm. as it evolves into nonlinear TV as well and streaming. I'd say the thing that I love the most about our industry collectively is the fact that it's not dull. It's constantly in motion. It is constantly evolving. It is constantly changing. And to what I mentioned before and referenced before, I'm one who leans into taking risks. I think, you know, change happens regardless of whether or not you plan for it or otherwise. And so, you know, from my perspective, better to keep a finger on the pulse of what's happening understand, you know, what's happening now versus what's going to happen in the future and position yourself, consistently position yourself as a professional so that you also can evolve and grow and learn and change as change happens around you, you know, be the change and embrace that change. So what I love the most is being at the center of that change and being part of that change. It's exciting. It's exciting to see how our collective industries are continuing to evolve from linear to nonlinear and embrace streaming and you know seeing what covid has done from a purely consumer perspective as it pertains to consumer habits mm. whether it's viewing or purchasing or otherwise i think is fascinating and we're at that crossroads right now as an industry where we've got to make real hard decisions to help future proof our industry moving forward Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think COVID has uh, served as somewhat of a lubricant and accelerant in making that happen. And so that's been exciting to to see up close and personal as well. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely right. Our our industry is always changing, always evolving. And and I think you touched on a few things there that that's important. And the ability to be flexible to change with the times to continue to learn as well, too, because if not, you will get left behind in, in our industry. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you about 
your most proudest sort of accomplishments uh, over your career? Uh, obviously, your your career is not done yet. You've got a long way to go, right? But in you know doing my research and looking at your LinkedIn profile, saw that you were named 2017 Ad Week 50 top exec across marketing and advertising. That has to be something you're super proud of, and others. So, just curious, you know, if there's there's uh, a few things out there that you kind of hang your hat on with respect to your career so far, in terms of what you're most proud of. It's huh. a great question, Corral. I I don't know, man. I mean, I won't point to anything other than, well, a few things. One, just thriving and surviving in this doggy dog world of, mm-hmm. of the combined ecosystem of advertising, marketing, and PR. You know, I did not have sponsors growing up and being in this industry. I had very few people that I could look to for advice and go to. And so, you know, I think one of the things I'm most proud of, to be honest with you, is being able to be that for people of color specifically, but all people really just be a source of information, of experience, of guidance, being a mentor. You know, I love that. I take pride in that, you know, for people who who are unsure or dealing with issues in their workplace or, you know, look, it's not easy being, you know, a person of color in this country to begin with, much less a professional in our industry on top of that. You know, we just went through a year last year, watershed year, that shed so much light for the rest of the industry, not for people of color, <laughs> right, right, but for everyone else. And yeah. so, you know, for me right now, right now, this time right now, what I am most proud of is being a part of that community and, you know, being, uh, you know, a senior, you know, peer and person in our industry and being a mentor. Um, That means more to me than anything. You know, the ability to be for others what I never had is critically important. All the other accolades and whatnot, I mean, you know, those things are great, you know, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but they're part of a team effort. Most of the time, it's never just one person. Uh, So there's just way too many people to to acknowledge and to thank as part of helping me to, to achieve some of the accolades that I've, I've, you know, been fortunate enough to, to receive over the years. Yeah. Um, but I'd say the other thing is just, again, going back to the ability to thrive and survive in the past eight, no, in the past 10, 12 years, 12 years, I guess I've been part of six mergers and acquisitions wow. over the past 12, 13 years, I guess. So it has not been dull and I'm still here and I'm still you know, thriving. I'm still, you know, relevant. I still have a, a, you know, a big future ahead of me as far as my career is concerned. Mm-hmm. Excited about that. And so where things go, who knows, but uh, I'm excited for the ride. I'm excited to be where I am and how I'm seen and, and to be a source of inspiration and, and mm-hmm. you know, intelligence and, you know, just uh, support where needed. Yep. Gotcha. You mentioned the year that was 2020, right? And of course, a year like like no other. 
You mentioned the the light that has been shined on sort of the diversity, equity, and inclusion issues and even initiatives now that that are are taking place in our industry. And I think we've never had the momentum like we do now to to impact and make change. What are some of the things you think that our industry needs to do more of to be more inclusive? Huh. <laughs> so much. You know, look, again, I think last year shed light on an issue that is not strictly to our industry, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It impacts and affects all of corporate and all of this country, frankly, as it pertains to the systemic racism that many people of color have faced for most of their lives, for many of their lives, much of their lives. And that also includes corporate. And so with corporate, you know, we saw a lot last year. We heard a lot. You know, the commitment, at least financial commitment by a lot of the CPG brands and companies and corporations to support communities of color and those that are marginalized was great. You know, they said and did the right things as it pertains to the PR talking points. They checked all the boxes. But what is Paramount is having an actual plan in place that can affect change, that can move the needle. Mm -hmm. That means more than just rhetoric, more than just talking points, more than just checking boxes and donating money. Those are all important things. But it really starts with having a Swiss Army knife approach that is grounded in data and transparent and holds all of us accountable. It's about numbers, you know, numbers and data talk. Everything else is bullshit. Pardon my French. So it's all good. You can, you can curse on this podcast. So yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh, you shouldn't have told me that. <laughs> um, you know, so I've had a lot of conversations, ongoing conversations, for example, with many of the organizational governing bodies in our industry. So the 4As, for example, the AAF, uh, Mm. she runs it, IAB. I've been having ongoing conversations with all of these organizations as it pertains to what their efforts are, what their plans are for holding their members accountable, for putting the data in place as it pertains to how are they actually going to account for the numbers and changing the numbers, changing the ratio, changing the status quo? So it starts there. I think that's one aspect and one ratio. It also has to do with you know the agencies and the brands and them having their own plans, internal plans for holding themselves accountable. Mm. These are honest conversations that we have to continue to have and hold up the mirror in front of ourselves collectively. And, you know, it's the accountability and transparency that has been the issue. We all know that the numbers are weak. Number of people of color at the executive level, at the board level, at the mid-level is atrocious. And Mm -hmm. the numbers bore that out last year. Most of many, many, many companies and corporations, whether it's the uh, the holding companies or, or the brands, were pretty transparent about where they were. And so the numbers are what they are. I'm not saying anything out of turn. Right. But it's about how do you use that data moving forward to create the necessary internal infrastructures and plans that can actually be measured against 
and progress the change that we need. Mm. Uh, they reflect the very consumers and the very people that we serve on day to day. I mean, if you look at our country, we are a country that is diverse. That there is no question about that. Right. You know, you look at millennials. I think it's what forty-four or forty-five percent of millennials associate themselves as other. Going back to that box that we talked about earlier. Yeah, right. So, you know, we do ourselves a disservice by not having our own companies and our own industry be a reflection of the very consumers that we are actually Absolutely. creating stories and pitching stories to and selling our wares to. So, you know, mm. being a part of those conversations, I am encouraged in one way in that the door is now open, mm-hmm. the mirror is held up, we see what's in the mirror. And so, you know, that gives me some level of hope, but it's about what do you do with the opportunity? Because to me, this is a huge year in terms of the accountability aspect. Yep. We've talked about it. Now, you know, some of these organizations and, and agencies and holding companies are supposedly doing what they need to do internally to set themselves up so that they can actually implement the changes that need to be made moving forward and hold themselves accountable and measure and have the data, have the raw data Mm -hmm. as as it pertains to here's where we are right now, here's where we're going to be next year, here's where we're going to be in three to five years. And so I think this summer will be another summer of reckoning, if you will. Because a lot of the the promises that were made last summer will either come to bear fruit or not. not, If not, not, then it's up to all of us as an industry and more specifically as people of color to hold them accountable and ask why, why not? Yeah. You know, you you mentioned the data, Christian. It's interesting uh, as as practitioners, as an industry, we're data-driven, right? It's the one area where data has been ignored. And folks have looked the other way. So thank you for, for pointing that out because it's really, really important. You know, uh, you mentioned earlier, Christian, you know, you're, you're a son, right? You're the son of, of, of immigrants who, who came here, had a unique experience on their own. You're a father and you're teaching young humans to be, you know, good humans, right? How have you taking your own personal experiences that I'm sure you've faced with discrimination, how are you teaching your family? And what did you learn from your parents on how to handle issues of discrimination when faced with them? Uh, we're going real deep on these. <laughs> uh, so my parents, again, are old school. There was no handholding. There was no coddling you know, uh, pretty much was left to my own devices to deal with what I needed to deal with. I think they were also dealing with their own issues in terms of racism in a way that they had never experienced in Haiti. It's very different. And so Mm -hmm. I think we were all kind of trying to figure things out at the same time, if you will. You know, my parents ended up leaving Queens and and ultimately settling in New Jersey uh, when I was around eight or nine years old and the Jersey Shore at that. And so that was where I was raised in my formative years. And when we first moved to our neighborhood, you know, came to find out that there had been a petition to keep us off the block because we were black. And so 
you know, I learned that at a very young age. And, you know, this is after years of having been called names and getting into fights because of that. You know, I just ended up having thick skin and it was what it was, you know. Fast forward to this past year and frankly, you know, the past 16 years since I've been a father, I'm a father of two sons, two boys, Rohan, who is my oldest, and he is 16 and a half, and Atlas is 13, going on 14, it'll be 14 in February, as a matter of fact. And so having to have the talk, which we now all know, and as P&G immortalizing their ads as well, but you know, I've had that talk and that discussion with them since Trayvon Martin, mm. uh, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, and so that has been a constant source of, of discussion in my family since then and has only accelerated the need to have ongoing conversations with them as the years have progressed since then. And the more of these heinous acts of racism and killings and murders are captured and aired for all to see, it absolutely necessitates the need for me to keep it real with my boys, you know, keep it real and have those really tough discussions, not only about what it is to be person of color, because they are fortunate enough to live in a neighborhood that is as diverse as a community as I've ever lived in, frankly. So we're blessed on that hand and live in a bubble in, in, an, in a way as well, when outside of that bubble, the realities are aired into our living room every day, every day. with acts of racism and, you know, videos and clips. And, and, you know, we watch the news every night, PBS news hour, and we discuss what they're talking about. And so these are, daily discussions, especially in a year such as that of 2020, where you have COVID on top of, you know, to start off with, and we're all stuck home, and they're not at school with their classmates and not doing the things that kids their age should be doing, socializing and interacting and understanding, you know, how to deal with different personalities and different people. Then on top of that, you have all of the social unrest and, and, and the racism that happened all of last year and the killings and, and all of that and the feelings that go along with that. And then on top of that, you've got the election and, and leadership that is just, it is what it is, right? Yeah. It is what it is, as uh, our former first lady said. So, you know, there's a lot to have to keep a finger on the pulse of as it pertains to raising children. Being a parent has never been more difficult than it is right now. On top of that, you've got all the social media channels and the constant bombarding of content and information and the desire for my kids' attention, which is fleeting at best. But boy, yeah. when it comes to TikTok and YouTube, boy, they'll give it like, you know, nobody. We know. It has been a year unlike any, and we all know this, but for parents, especially people of color and their kids to, to have those conversations and to bring my own experiences to those, to those conversations, which I mean, I've had them ad nauseum. I've talked about, you know, my experience with the police 
in Prince George's County in Maryland when I was still going to, you know, Howard and getting pulled over by six cop cars and, you know, nine cops came coming out with shotguns and guns pointed at us and, you know, everything that came with that. They have heard those stories mm. and it's coming back full circle now, especially as I'm out on the road with my oldest teaching him to drive right now. We're definitely having those conversations. So it's... uh. It is a real challenge to be a parent in general, especially in today's world. It is especially challenging to be a parent who is a person of color with children who are people of color and having them stand on their own two feet, not be anchored by the issues that we as a society are challenged with as it pertains to racism in this country, but being aware and being cognizant and having a strong sense of self, a strong sense of identity, even when, you know, that gets called into question on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, I just try to keep it real with my kids and transparent and honest and 100 and have those tough discussions and, and listen, more importantly. I think, you know, listening is a lost art form because we are so, our attention is so fleeting and, and is, you know, uh, being sliced and diced a million different ways. And, and so I, I think to ensure that I keep a finger on the pulse of what they're doing and how they are evolving and maturing as young men, that is my real job. <laughs> that is my real job. Well, thank, thank you for sharing that with us, Christian. Thank you for your honesty and, and, and you know, opening up and, and telling us about that. You mentioned mentors earlier. You mentor some folks. Some folks have probably impacted and influenced you in, in your life as, as mentors. Who are some of those folks and like, how do you help to pass that on to some of the folks that, that you work with now? Well, Eric, again, you know, I think... For most of my career, I would say I did not actually have mentors. So I I kind of went at it solo and kind of figured it out on my own. Thank you. Um, It's only in the past 10 years, I would say, that I have been blessed enough to be surrounded by just a community of incredible, powerful, strong, intelligent peers friends, family that are part of, you know, my network. And so they now serve as my mentors as I serve as theirs. And we support one another. We are there for one another. And, you know, at this stage in my career, it's great to be able to have that support system of like-minded individuals, both male and female, who have gone through it, who have done you know, who have zigged and zagged in their own careers, who have faced their own adversity and have risen to the top. And they're not stopping and I'm not stopping. We keep on uh, motivating one another. But it's good to know that we're not unicorns, that we are uh, not one. We are one of many. And so we are there to support one another and to keep shit real. And when things get crazy around us or doesn't feel right, we have one another to, to serve as, as, you know, a gut check. Like, this person said this thing to me today. Am I crazy or is that <laughs> whack? You can't really have that conversation with a lot of people. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, past 10 years, man, I have really been blessed. So, 
you know, I, I take it upon myself to try to be that for others who are younger and coming up and blazing their own path. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to share my knowledge. I'm happy to share my experience. I'm happy to be a sounding board where needed or to guide where needed. And, and you know, that's what I get a tremendous amount of satisfaction and joy from doing that. Mm. Christian, I see that bookcase behind you. What, what are you reading these days? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I just finished reading It Was All a Lie, which was uh, a phenomenal book by Stuart Stevens, all about politics. I'm all into politics all these politics. days as well. You know, that, that was a great book that I just finished. I'm reading in the middle of reading uh, Barack Obama's autobiography, the one that just came out right mm-hmm. uh, the end of last year. So I'm reading that one and concurrently reading uh, ta Coates' The Water Dancer, which I had not read and has been sitting on my bookshelf collecting dust for the past year and change. So finally reading that as well. Okay. Uh, nice, nice. All right. So one fun question I like asking every guest we have on the podcast, which is to give me the top three apps on your phone that you use regularly, but you can't <laughs> name email or calendar or text messaging. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, lately, actually, it's been, I'm going to pull mine up as a matter of fact right now. So lately it's been, uh, so since the summer, last summer, Clubhouse was a big one for me. Um, So got into that, got invited to that one back in August, you know, dipped my toe into it here and there. And since then, I've both been a part of and have just listened in on some of the most incredible discussions on a Mm -hmm. myriad of topics with some of the smartest, most renowned people and others that I just don't know in general. So the exposure that that platform has given me to others in our space and outside of our space, just across a myriad of, of topics and interests has been awesome. I'll say the, does the Apple news app count? Cause that's the one I open like first and foremost every day, all day I'm on that one. All right. um, you know, I'd say probably, I don't know. I mean, I use Shazam. I use IG. You know, probably those and then notes is just another one that I use gotcha. a lot as well. Yeah. Well, Christian, thanks so much for spending a great time with us. And a lot of our listeners love to stay in touch or, or follow you. What are some ways that they can get in touch or follow you? Absolutely. <laughs> for anyone who wants to hear me uh, drone on about anything, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. My account is at Christian Borges, all one word. Or you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, or you can uh, email me. You know, uh, I'm happy to get emails from you. So you can send that my personal email address, christian.borges1216 at gmail.com. And if it's work related, feel free to ping me at work, christian at truex, all one word, dot com. So uh, I'm happy to connect with as many people who want to, who need guidance, who just want to connect in general. I'm here to be a resource. That's my, my, that's my real goal right now. Excellent. Thanks again for joining us. And thank you all for listening to another episode. If you're looking for more episodes, you can find us where you find all of your audio and video. Just search Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thanks. <laughs>